From the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, this is Politically Georgia. I'm Bill Nygut. Anger over the arrest of undocumented immigrant Jose Ibarra in the killing of Athens student Lakin Riley is boiling over in some Georgia community. Just minutes ago, Athens Clark County Mayor Kelly Gertz held a news conference at which he was repeatedly shouted down even as he tried to express his sympathy. Be sorry for this tragedy. Responsibility for this crime rests solely on the perpetrator. I'm Tia Mitchell in Washington. Georgia legislators are responding to the killing of Lake and Raleigh with a series of bills intended to penalize cities that protect immigrants from deportation by ICE. There's also been a response by Republicans in Washington. Plus, the witness who defense attorneys believed would corroborate their contention that Fonnie Willis and Nathan Wade have lied about their romantic relationship gave lawyers little to work with in his testimony yesterday. We invite you to follow us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts so you never miss an episode of Politically Georgia. This is Politically Georgia, from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. In Atlanta, one voice has stood out for over four decades. An AJC original, The Monica Pearson Show. Let's talk about how you got to ESPN. Revealing interviews. You are known as America's doctor, but I want to know who you were before that. When you have a different name, you have different color skin, it can be tough. With Atlanta's most famous faces, as you've never seen them before. I'm telling my story. This is the American dream. The Monica Pearson Show, streaming now on AJC.com. Welcome to Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. I'm Bill Nygut, along with co-host Tia Mitchell. I'm really glad we have a great panel who we'll introduce in just a minute to help us march through all of this. Yeah, looking forward to our discussion today. Well, the starting point has got to be an event that occurred just about an hour ago in Athens, Georgia. Um, Mayor Kelly Gertz held a news conference in which he wanted to address concerns uh, about the killing of um, Lake and Riley uh, by a suspect now in custody, alleged uh, 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 killer, um, who is an undocumented immigrant. Kelly Gertz wanted to set the record straight uh, in terms of what he thinks about the safety of citizens in Athens and about the fact that uh, Athens is not technically a sanctuary city. We'll talk about that in a little while. He tried to talk about the fact that crime rates in Athens compared to other comparable cities of its size are lower, that um, uh, university cities uh, have higher crime rates than uh, Athens does. But as you're going to hear right now, uh, he had a very difficult time getting through any of this uh, because he was interrupted constantly by very angry people who were allowed to be in the news conference. Let's listen. Many of the elements. Liar. Many of the elements. Liar. Liar. We, liar. We are here to listen. Liar. You're a liar. We are here to listen. Liar. You're a liar. Guilty and got blood on your head for this murder, sir. Many of the elements. Liar. Many of the elements. Liar. 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 We are here to listen. Liar. You're a liar. We are here to listen. Liar. You're You're a liar. You're a liar. You're a guilty and got blood on your head for this murder. So that happened literally within the last hour. And um, there's um, activity going on in the state legislature right now that relates to the killing in Athens. There's things going on on Capitol Hill. Uh, President Biden 
and uh, candidate Donald Trump are both headed to the border tomorrow because immigration, even in the aftermath of, of the, the murder, um, has jumped to the top of everyone's political agenda. So we're going to start our show by talking about all of that today with our wonderful panel. And I want to start by introducing you, Fred Smith, professor of law at Emory University. Um, you're, you grew up in Athens, and so it must be particularly heartbreaking for you to see how things are going in that community, as we just heard in that news conference. Absolutely. I mean, first and foremost, uh, the killing itself has been exceptionally difficult for the community, um, both in terms of those who knew her, um, but also more broadly, um, this is a, a senseless killing that on a human scale um, is very much felt in the Athens community right now. In hearing uh, the pain uh, in people's voices as they uh, shout down the mayor, as he tries to explain that Athens is actually not a sanctuary city, um, hearing that pain is also difficult. Yeah, um, and Kelly Gertz did, in fact, um, say that he understood why people were angry and upset. He said something to the effect of each of us responds to tragedy in our own way. And I had to uh, uh, give him some credit for <laughs> he maintained his composure uh, to the extent that he could in the midst of all of that. Tammy Greer is back with us for the first time in quite a while. She is a professor of political science at Georgia State University. And Tammy, you have another credential that you've added to your uh, uh, your uh, resume. What is it? Um, so, Bill, I'm uh, in the Andrew Young School of Policy Studies uh, in the Public Management and Policy Department. Um, so um, not political science right now, uh, political science adjacent, though. Um, and I am also the director of the um, BIS, which is Bachelor of Interdisciplinary Studies uh, Social Entrepreneurship Program. And basically the program is uh, for those students that want to make money while doing a social good. All so right, that's well, what social entrepreneurship thank is. You for, thank you for correcting uh, the record on your work in political science. Um, Andra Gillespie is back with us. Andra, as you all know out there, if you listen to the show, is a frequent uh, panelist on our in our conversations, professor of political science at Emory, um, also the director of the James Weldon Johnson Institute for the Study of Race and Difference at Emory University. Andra, um, welcome to the show. I really appreciate the fact that all of you are going to sort of roll with the breaking news today. So thank you, uh, Andra, for that, as well as the other two. Oh, thank you. And Tammy, you're always a political scientist. So. That's right. I think that's <laughs> where, where you sit. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Let's uh, begin our conversation. Um, I, first of all, Fred already expressed it. Um, there's so much pain in, um, in many people's hearts, well beyond Athens itself, um, over this, this terrible, terrible uh, death. Um, Andra, when you heard the, disrupted, the disruptions, um, what were your what were your thoughts? Um, I mean, I think they were probably very similar to Fred's. I mean, this is a horrible death. And it's something that I think a lot of people can imagine themselves being in. Lincoln was just out for a jog. You could be going out for a walk like and to have something like this happen um, is terrible. And I think emotions are, in fact, you know, very high and that this has become a focusing event for issues related to immigration 
and what should be the policy when undocumented people break the law? What kind of communication should there be uh, between state and local government and with the federal government with regard to, to these people and their status? Um, and then also the, the um, you know, accused murderer, you know, in terms of, you know, he had, as, as I understand it, correct me if I'm wrong, and, and, and you know, an outstanding um, asylum case and all of these issues that we're hearing about, uh, you know, international politics and on the news every day kind of come to the fore in this case. Um, you know, I think about this in the context of uh, our state legislative session. You know, I expect that a bill that uh, might have been perceived as being less viable uh, before crossover day regarding uh, punishing sheriffs uh, who uh, don't cooperate with the federal government and turning over uh, uh, people who they arrest, who they uh, discover to be undocumented now probably has, uh, you know, a greater chance of of, of surviving crossover day um, as a result of, 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 of this horrible murder. And so it just goes to show how um, tragic events can and 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 exogenous shocks to the news cycle can actually help shift policy debates. Um, you know, in the short term. Oh. Um, but I, I think at the end of the day, what we can't forget is this happened because somebody died and somebody died mm. tragically. And mm. Somebody, you know, you know, his life was cut way too short. Yeah. Um. Let's explain a couple of things that have happened here. Um. Number one, Kelly Gertz tried to make uh, uh it known that Athens isn't technically a sanctuary city. Um, but it is also true that they don't routinely work with ICE when they uh, arrest undocumented immigrants. I'm not sure um, what the nuanced difference is exactly. But Tia, the uh, chief of police had an opportunity to answer one question in this news conference. It was about whether Ibarra had been arrested before. We know that he had. The chief said that he was picked up for a fairly minor crime of shoplifting in October that they went through all the state and national databases to see if Ibarra was on the list of people who were considered a threat. They didn't find him. And so he was released as is customary, he said, in minor arrests like this one, Tia. Right. And to go back to the sanctuary city thing, what Sheriff Gertz said is that because sanctuary city is like not a formal designation that depending on who you ask, there are different definitions that people will give for what constitutes a sanctuary city. And so um, in Athens case, um, what the sheriff in 2018 and, and what Mayor Gertz said is we got to remember what the climate was then where the rhetoric from then President Trump and was a very anti-immigrant. There was a lot of concern that ICE was becoming heavy-handed in how it treated undocumented immigrants and asking local governments to assist with that by holding people an extra 48 hours to give ICE more time to figure out what's going on with them. And so Athens sheriff at the time said, we are no longer going to comply with this extra 48-hour hold unless a judge or a court tells us to hold someone longer. Otherwise, we're detaining people an extra two days just because ICE wants us to. Now, again, that's what a lot of the people who are calling Athens a sanctuary city, that and the fact that a year later, 
the local government passed a resolution that basically said, we welcome you. We want you to feel safe, regardless of whether you're an undocumented immigrant. So, again, for some people, that's a sanctuary city. The fact that they said, if you're undocumented, we still want you to feel safe and welcome here in Athens. And the fact that the sheriff isn't uh, said he wouldn't cooperate with this extra hold unless a court or a judge told him to. Um, but the other, so I just want to put that out there so people can make their own judgment call of whether those policies are the right thing to do because the terminology sanctuary city really doesn't have much meaning. Nope. And go ahead. No, I, I thank you for that um, because of what I wanted to jump in on is, is just what's happening in the state legislature right now in, in reaction to the arrest of Ibarra, Tammy, is that legislators, Republican legislators are introducing there's a number of bills, but essentially what it's going to come down to is the state wants to have the right to uh, penalize in some way um, uh, communities, cities that uh, do not cooperate in the 287G program, which is what requires local municipalities, sheriffs uh, to turn over uh, people who are undocumented if they've been arrested to ICE. And so, as Anders already pointed out, that that that's going to get some real jet fuel today as a result of the Ibarra arrest, Tammy. Absolutely. Uh, it will also, um, I think, have some legs in the sense of uh, will this be able to move the needle when it came to um, Im- when it comes to immigration policy on the federal level? Um, because even if the General Assembly um, passes something and the governor signs it, then you still need the the aid of the federal government um, in terms of having immigration officers to come um, and to retrieve those individuals. Um, and then we have a looming uh, debt ceiling uh, challenge that's coming in two days that will um, impact also the federal government. So I think that there's, um, I, I think sometimes when we uh, go through these tragedies, um, there's an immediate uh, push to 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 show that there is movement on some of these policies, yet there's a um, a residual that goes on that we're having disconnected and disjointed conversations about solutions rather than working together for long-term impact. Fred? There's some things that the federal government can do, and there's some things that the, that the state government alone can do. Uh, so, for example, um, if the federal government tried to make uh, state or local governments do basically anything, it would violate the 10th Amendment of the Constitution. So under a, something called anti-commandeering, um, the federal government can't require state and local officials to carry out federal goals. Um, that said, states can make local governments do things because uh, local governments are creatures of the state, right? So that's something really kind of only the state uh, could do. Um, but in terms of the border itself, Right, that belongs to the federal government, and um, it is entirely possible that this will um, change the conversation because this does appear to have um, quickly taken on um, national importance, probably in part because the very first reports of this senseless murder immediately mentioned the killer's status, 
like it was in the it was in the it, it was tied up with it was bound up with us learning about uh, the killing um and that has informed i think um how uh, it has traveled in the um, in the political sense so um tia and then i want to get andra back into the conversation um the, the news of this murder uh has uh, certainly um gotten republicans on the hill uh, energized around immigration um number 1 uh, Congressman Mike Collins has sent a letter to the mayor of Athens in, and, and to the sheriff of Athens, Clark County, saying you you have to give up essentially this so-called sanctuary city status. You've got to begin cooperating with federal agencies. Right, Tia? So, again, yes, yes, you're right. But again, he's using this sanctuary city terminology that doesn't mean anything, but he does mention the two things that I mentioned earlier, the resolution saying that Athens was welcoming. Um, and then he specifically asked to reverse the policy of not cooperating with those 20, those 48 hour holds when ICE um, asked for them. Um, but I think more so than that, um, what Collins is doing, and we should note he's the congressman who, represents Athens and he's pretty conservative. We know Athens uh, is known as a more liberal town as many college towns are and more progressives have been winning elected office in Athens. And so I think we should just hit to the core of this, that at the end of the day, this tragedy that we've all, you know, very well aware that this is tragic. A young woman's life was cut way too short, but it's shrouded in politics. It's shrouded shrouded in the culture wars. It's shrouded in um, identity politics that to me has become very clear in how all sides are, are reacting to what happened. And, um, and, and, and we're right. Even before, Law enforcement announced that the suspect was an undocumented immigrant. We were getting emails from Republican elected officials saying this is showing that President Biden has been, you know, uh, derelict at the border because this undocumented immigrant killed the lady in Athens. I heard it first from Republican elected officials, not law enforcement. Yeah, Andra? Yeah, I mean, you know, this is an example of how um, perception is reality. Um, and so uh, it, it sounded like, and I, I don't want to put uh, words in Mir Gertz's mouth, he was trying to sort of go through sort of this logical litany of how Athens isn't technically a sanctuary city or, you know, to start parroting, you know, data on how undocumented people are. Uh, usually less likely to commit crimes on the average, right? People are going to look at this one individual case and you shouldn't extrapolate from one case to a wider thing, but because somebody is dead and this is somebody who was a vital part of the community who people know and love, and this just isn't the time to politically or strategically to kind of have that type of argument. And so you have to kind of you know, lean into the outrage um, and sort of acknowledge the hurt that is real and the harm that has been done here in this situation and sort of recognize that 
it's going to be really difficult at this moment to kind of take a progressive position um, because this has now captured the imagination of people. And this is what people are thinking. And this is what is at the top of folks' minds as they are thinking about what they already think about immigration. And, you know, and people were already primed. So depending on where you get your news from, depending on what your political orientation is, chances are you thought immigration was a top issue. This is just reinforcing what you've already thought. Yeah, Fred, obviously Athens is just one community. It's the community where this terrible tragedy took place, but it is just one community where people are now having uh, new animated arguments about immigration policy. Um, and and it, I think Andre makes a really excellent point. Uh, Mayor Gertz um, has always been, I, I think, kind of a... Um, moderating influence as a political uh, leader. He certainly leans to the left. We know that. But he's always been kind of calm and reasonable, at least in the way that we've observed him over the years. His efforts today to try to somehow talk about Athens needing to be a community that welcomes people, that wants to treat people with with decency and humanity, as Andra points out, um, what's getting the coverage is not that. It's what we played at the beginning of the show today. It's just how angry some people are. Yeah, it is striking. And it's kind of, I think, hard to know how do you, um, how entirely do you both reflect and understand that outrage um, while also part of recognizing humanity too is also acknowledging that we are all human, right? I mean, the term sanctuary city arises in a religious tradition that a religious tradition that treats every single human being uh, as child of God. That's where it comes from. Um, and uh, the idea is that God doesn't care what place somebody was born. Um, and that morphed uh, into this, this term that has become a political term that has lost that meaning, right? And so how does one speak on a human level right now um, Acknowledging that outrage, acknowledging that pain, acknowledging this tragedy, um, and simultaneously acknowledging that we're all human. Uh, I don't, I don't have the answers for um, for how um, to do that, uh, but I do think that there is room. I hope um, for um, for both ways of speaking about humanity right now. So, Tia, um, Donald Trump and uh, President Biden both headed to the border. They'll end up uh, essentially having dueling photo availabilities and probably news conferences as well. And it's, you know, they may have been planning to go anyway, but certainly this murder in Athens is uh, going to uh, uh, make their visits there uh, even higher in their profile, right? Yeah. And I think this is one of those times where people who voters, people who are going to be making a decision in November about who should be the, the next president of the United States or president for the next four years should really pay attention. I think there's going to be a big contrast in how Biden and Trump um, approach their, their trips to the border. There will be a big contrast in how they talk about the border. There will be a big contrast in how they talk about immigration and what should or should not be done to stem the flow of migrants. Um, and I think it matters. So, and it's not to, I'm not here to make a judgment call one way or the other. That's up to our listeners, but I really would encourage our listeners to pay attention because 
there will likely be a contrast and it matters going forward for the next four years. What will be our approach again as immigration becomes more and more top of mind for um, for for people, for voters? So please watch and pay attention, take notes, and then you can walk away and say, I really liked what Trump had to say more than Biden, or I thought what Biden had to say was better than Trump. But you'll you'll have a choice to make after Thursday. Well, t- Tammy, there we've got to get to a break in a couple minutes here, but I think we really need to address uh, one more aspect of these visits to the border. Um, the intelligence coming out of the White House is that it's likely that President Biden, in the aftermath of Republicans in the House refusing to vote on the border security compromise measure, which was agreed upon by Republicans and Democrats in the Senate, realizes that he's got to do something fast. And and it is quite likely that he will tomorrow um, issue some executive orders that he thinks will have some impact on the border situation. Um, The problem is that just as Donald Trump before him, almost anything he does unilaterally in the executive branch, is going to be challenged immediately in court. Trump had 14 executive orders about the border overturned by courts during his tenure. Tammy? Separation of powers um, is is critical, and that role belongs to Congress. It's also very interesting to hear Speaker uh, Mike Johnson yesterday say that, you know, instead of uh, Congress doing something instead of there being compromise between the two branches of Congress that the president should just do an executive order and that deflects the responsibility of Article One of the Constitution. So it's very uh, fascinating to see people on the one hand note that something must be done and then on the other hand do nothing. So I I would um, be interested in seeing what the voters do in November in particular as it pertains to representatives who, again, say one thing yet don't do um, exactly what they're what Fred, they're screaming about. Sorry, Fred, uh, before we get to the break, you're the legal expert on the show. How, how, how far can uh, the any president go in terms of executive orders on something like the border? Yeah, well, right now we're in a moment in which the Supreme Court has um, actually cut back quite a bit on what one can do by way of executive action, right? And the idea is that um, the president executes the laws, the president doesn't make the laws. Uh, And so uh, when the court uh, concludes that that line has been crossed, as they did with respect to student student loan forgiveness. And there the president actually had a statute that sounded a whole lot like it gave him the authority to do that. Um, so here where you don't really, uh, to my knowledge, have uh, even that, I will see what the legal, what the basis the, um, the executive gives tomorrow is. Um, one would think that this is a space where um, where the court would be, um, would be skeptical. Um, on the other hand, the president is the commander in chief. Uh, and um, with that, that comes uh, a particular uh, set of powers when it comes to how one relates to issues of foreign affairs, um, which this in the most, at its most, at its broadest uh, understanding of what the word foreign affairs means, um, this might fall into that category. Um, And so we'll see what the court does with this. All right. Um, Fred Smith gets the last comments for this segment. Thank you all for a, a, a really smart conversation about Athens and far beyond in terms of immigration. We're going to get to our first break right now. 
When we come back, we're going to talk about electoral politics. Michigan voted, as most people know by now, in their primaries uh, yesterday. It's an important election because Michigan's really the first make-or-break state to elect uh, uh, their candidates on the Republican and Democratic uh, side of the ballot. So we'll be talking about that and more. But first, we're going to pause. This is Politically Georgia from the AJC. Donald Trump has been indicted in Atlanta. We have so many court dockets to follow, but we haven't really seen anything yet. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution has covered every moment of this historic case. I've been writing about this investigation for two and a half years. Our team is led by reporters Bill Rankin and Tamar Hallerman. Follow our coverage on AJC.com and listen to new in-depth episodes of the award-winning podcast, Breakdown, The Trump Indictment, only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Welcome back to Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. I'm Bill Nygut, along with co-host Tia Mitchell, Andre Gillespie from Emory University, Tammy Greer from Georgia State, and Fred Smith from Emory. We've got a great offer for Politically Georgia listeners. For a limited time, subscribe and you'll get digital access to the AJC for just $1.99 per week for life. Subscribe now by going to AJC.com slash start. That's AJC.com slash start. It's a great deal for a greater Atlanta. And by the way, this is for new subscribers only. Tia, Michigan voters went to the polls yesterday. We can talk about uh, the races separately, so we should start with what I think most people would concede is more significant news. Um, President Biden certainly won. He got 81% of the Democratic vote, but uncommitted uh, got a total of 100 plus thousand votes, right about 101,000 votes. Much of that, as you know, Tia, came from the Dearborn area where the Muslim community, which is very strong in, in that part of the state, is upset with Biden, wanted to show their displeasure with his support for Israel and, and his apparent refuse they feel his refusal to do more to help the Palestinians in Gaza City. He also uh, lost votes among young people, college students and East Lansing at Michigan State at Ann Arbor, uh, Michigan University, University of Michigan. So this was a real wake up call in many ways for the White House of the campaign. Yes, Tia? Um. I don't know if I would say wake up call because it's not like they didn't see this coming. Okay, um, <laughs> fair enough. Um, but to your, I think what you're saying is it was a very um, tangible example of the problems that Biden faces with parts of his base that he needs to turn up. Mm. And the risk is like, I don't think anyone thinks any of this, what roughly what a hundred thousand people or so who voted uncommitted. Yeah, it's about 101,000 right now, but they're still counting votes. I don't think anyone thinks that a a good chunk of these people are potential Trump voters. But if a good chunk of these people stay home, that could be a difference maker in a swing state like Michigan. And that's where Biden needs to uh, continue to work to not only address their concerns about the Israel-Hamas conflict and how it's impacting Gaza, but to your point, address the fact that young people just 
don't know what the Biden administration has done to address things that are important to them, like student debt, like climate change. Um, so there's a lot of work to do for sure. Andra, um, you're the data cruncher of the group today. Um, I think Biden won Michigan in the general election against uh Donald Trump by around 140 to 150,000 votes. So 100,000 plus people who decide they're not going to vote for him today does have significance as we move toward a general election, even though what Tia says, very well true. These are not people who are suddenly going to embrace Donald Trump. Yeah, I mean, we expect that uh, the margins are going to be narrow in Michigan by how much we don't know yet. And so to have, um, you know, a group of Democratic voters in Michigan, choose not to support Biden in, you know, the uh, primary where he's running almost unopposed. Uh, You know, uh, we could talk about sort of how badly Dean Phillips did. Uh, We could talk about how as a result of still getting votes in the Michigan primary, Marianne Williamson has just said she's back in the race. (laughs) Um, So it's what I'm seeing on social media. But at the end of the day, like that's nominal competition. Right. And so I I think the sort of the larger question is, A lot of these uncommitted voters may very well have done this as a protest vote because this is a safe place to register dissent. Right. But they're going to be people like Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib, for instance, who most people presume will still hold their nose and vote for Biden in a general election. And so we'll have to wait to see if she says that publicly and then how vigorously she campaigns for Biden. One could see that in a close contest. And so, like, we talk about the roughly 150,000 in 2020, but like that margin was around 10,000, you know, in 2016. Right. That's cause for alarm because there could be some people in this uncommitted group that um, are just not going to show up. Like they're so mad that they're going to register their dissent by not voting at all. And if we're looking at more of the 2016 margin than the 2020 margin, then that certainly does spell um, and register concern for uh, Biden. And we just don't know yet. You know, on the other hand, I think there are also a couple of things to point out. Despite the fact that, you know, 100,000 people voted uncommitted, it still wasn't enough, assuming we'll see sort of like what the final 5% um, of, of, of the ballots show, but it looks like it's going to fall under the 15% threshold, which means uncommitted doesn't get a delegate um, to the convention, which uh, minimizes the leverage that they're going to be able to have nationally. Um, I still expect that, you know, Israel-Palestine is going to be a part of a big fight um, at the uh Uh, during the platform committee uh, sort of like deliberations this summer uh, before the convention. But like it should be pointed out, there are no delegates that are going to be forthcoming as a result of this vote. The other thing is, is that in 2012, Obama had 11 percent of voters in his primary vote uncommitted in that race. And so right now this is trending at about 13 percent. So it's there. But relatively speaking, I don't know how small this is. And we haven't even talked about the quarter of Republicans on the other side, who some of whom probably aren't going to vote for Donald Trump in a general election. Right, which is the one thing that Haley will cling to as she moves forward. By the way, that 2012, I was looking at those numbers. Uh, There was very little, the voting was very low. There were only 174,000 votes cast in 2012 in the Democratic uh, primary. There were 21,000 people who said they they wanted an uncommitted uh, uh, slate. Um, So that's just kind of interesting. Tammy, let me turn to you. Uh, I think one of the things that the Biden campaign, all of us are going to look for, Minnesota is one of the Super Tuesday states that will vote next week and Georgia the week after that. So we're heading this way. 
Um, and the organization that got people to vote uncommitted yesterday is already on the ground in Minnesota trying to encourage Democrats there to do the same thing. If this becomes a theme moving forward, um, it is going to pose some questions. I would suggest, Tammy, your thoughts and then Tia, that the Biden momentum um, is going to be questioned by a lot of people. If that if the, that grassroots effort takes hold, I would be curious as to what then from that grassroots organization is their outcome. You know, what does the long game look like? Um, while I can understand this is viewed as a protest vote, um, our general election is still a, a binary choice. And so at, at, at some point, um, you know, what is it that is the long game? What is it that the organization wants? Um, and then uh, did the organization give the administration the ability to address it? And similarly, as to the first segment, perhaps some of this is more emotional and is challenging to have a conversation about policy and structure and sovereignty of other states, um, other uh, nations uh, in, in this particular space where we can, you know, say what can take place and what is out of the hands of the president. And I think that that's the challenge that the voters um, have because that is unclear to them. But again, what is the end game? Well, Tia, um, and then I want to get you back in, Fred. It seems to me that one of the goals of this organization is to get President Biden to back off his still relatively unequivocal support for Israel. I mean, the president has said a lot about being upset with uh, Netanyahu, feeling that the Israeli army has gone too far in terms of its assaults in uh, Gaza. But nevertheless, Tia, uh, clearly an American president stands with Israel. And so the question is, how can this organization really make an impact on that? Yeah, I mean, to me, that's a big question I have when people are um, showing this protest vote to Biden. And I get it. He's their candidate and they want to show him they're not satisfied with his approach towards Gaza, really, um, in Israel. Um, but I think they all would admit that the alternative, whether it be Trump or Haley or anyone else who's a leading candidate on the ballot, wouldn't really have a different answer and probably would have an answer if you're talking about Trump or Haley. That's even more supportive of Israel than what we've heard from Biden, who's at least expressed some concerns. So then the question becomes, are you willing to cut off your nose to spite your face? Um, and, and I think that's something, you know, I thought about how in 2016 you had a lot of particularly white women in, you know, college educated voters, suburban voters who helped swing the election ever so slightly towards Donald Trump. Um, and then some of those same voters are now complaining about the remake of the Supreme Court. They're complaining about the restrictions on abortion and the the ban on books and, and all the culture wars. Well, elections matter. And so, yeah, you can say at the end of the day, if I protest Biden, it's because it's Biden's fault for not doing what I wanted, which is fine. It's your business. That's American democracy in a nutshell. But we all know at the end of the day, this is a two party system and it's likely going to come down to Trump versus Biden. So there's a choice there. Fred, 
Yeah. And I think for some voters, they're going to make that calculation um, and they're going to think about it and approach it that way. Um, and then I think there's some voters who in various ways are close, so close to this issue um, that that sort of calculating um, is just not feasible. Right. So, I mean, if 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 the president had approached this from day one and, and said that, he, that if he did not support uh, Israel's right to defend itself, if he'd said some of the more extreme things that sometimes I myself hear protesters outside my window saying, if if President Biden said those things, there are voters uh, who are close uh, to people who are in Israel, who are close to the events of October 7th and who feel the pain of that day, um, who then wouldn't uh, vote for uh, President Biden, um, not because of a, a calculation uh, in, in the kind of political calculations we're talking about here, um, but just the rawness of it. And I think uh, in Michigan, there are a disproportionate number of voters compared to other swing states that feel the rawness of it. Um, and uh, and th- there's only so much actually that I can probably be done about that. Andre, before we get to a break, um, Michigan is the first state which has a prime open uh, primary. I mean, is that it, it is the last state before Super Tuesday in which there is an open primary? I believe the most, if not all, most of the states voting next week, uh, you have to register as a Republican or a Democrat. So push this forward for us, please, because Georgia is an open primary state. To what extent do you think that between Trump's? Let's talk about it in terms of Trump's vote. He lost 25 percent of the Republican voters. What do you anticipate it could be happening in our open primary state in terms of people voting against Donald Trump? Um, so I'm, I'm going to interpret that as how many people are crossing over and voting in the opposite. Party. Yeah, I think that's right. Yes. You know, it, it's still pretty rare. So we know from the exit polls in South Carolina, since there weren't exit polls last night um, in Michigan, that about five percent of uh, the uh, Democratic vote, uh, five percent of the Republican voters were, in fact, self-identified Democrats. Um, And so I think people think that this happens a lot, but. Like that 5% doesn't explain Nikki Haley's nearly 40% of the vote in the same way that crossover voters here in Georgia in 2022 in the gubernatorial primaries don't explain Brian Kemp's landslide victory um, over over David Perdue. So I think they're there. They're small. um, But most of the people who are participating in that primary were likely people who already identify with the uh, with the Republican Party. And so I think the bigger question is, whose couch is bigger to use the term of the people who might just stay home because they are very dissatisfied with the election. Um, And so it's a question of whether that 100,000 who voted uncommitted in in the Democratic primary in Michigan are going to stay home compared to the nearly 300,000 on the Republican side who voted for Nikki Haley. And so I think what we're going to be trying to calculate is how those cancel each other out in a general election. All right, Andre Gillespie, we've got to get to our final break in the show today. But when we come back, the supposed star witness that defense attorneys uh, thought could refute claims from Fannie Willis and Nathan Wade as to when their relationship started fizzled on the stand yesterday. We're going to talk about that after our break. This is Politically Georgia from the AJC. Hip hop is a product of black people. It's a product of black song. 
a celebration. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution presents Hip-Hop's most pulled elements are pulled from the South. A Southern hip-hop store. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. Everybody wants your rhythm, but they don't want your blues. The biggest names in hip-hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip-hop. 50 years. No one can deny. One film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip-hop. Welcome back to Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Twice daily delivered straight to your email, you can receive the AJC's Politically Georgian newsletter. Stay on top of all the important news, scoops, and exclusives from me and the rest of the AJC politics team. Just go to AJC.com newsletters and sign up today. That's AJC.com newsletters. Tim Mitchell, uh, lawyers who were representing defendants in the Georgia election conspiracy case thought that Terrence Bradley was going to be the witness. He's a former law partner of Nathan Wade's. He was going to be the witness who would prove that um, Wade and Willis have lied about when their relationship started. Yesterday was a very frustrating day if you're a defense lawyer because basically Bradley said, I not, I don't know. I was speculating. I don't remember. Um, so it didn't really go anywhere. And I want to talk about this in the context of a wonderful column that our colleague, Patricia Murphy, one of the co-hosts of this show, uh, had published uh, today uh, in which he said, hey, this is about whether or not Donald Trump and the co-defendants tried to overturn an election. Why are we all paying so much attention to this drama about Fonnie Willis and Nathan Wade? Tia? Yeah, I, you know, it was interesting, his testimony. He did not come across as the most credible or forthright witness. But at the end of the day, he gave what he gave and he didn't help those defense attorneys make their case that, you know, there's beyond the shadow of a doubt evidence that Nathan Wade and Fonnie Willis lied about when their relationship started. And that's not even getting to the fact that if they were found to have lied, would that be disqualifying? It's still problematic. This is still messy. This is still a huge unforced error by the district attorney. But so far, um, it's been a distraction, but it has not been a derailment. And, you know, Patricia's column, you know, the the folks who listen to our show have heard me say it as well. It's just like it's at the end of the day, Fonnie Wills said it probably better than all of us. She's not the one on trial. Former President Trump and his co-defendants are. But when will that be? We don't know. Uh, Fred, I question for you about this. Um, a lot of people who watched the testimony, I was certainly among them, um, did think what Tia just said, that, that Terrence Bradley seemed to be equivocating, uh, trying very hard not to uh, be specific in terms of what knowledge he may have. To what extent can a judge, in this case, Scott McAfee, look at that testimony and give consideration to whether he found the way Bradley testified was um, worthy of further inspection just in terms of how he decides this case. That's crucially important. Uh, this That particular aspect of this case really does come down to credibility. And uh, judges are, and juries for that matter, are allowed to take into account things like the demeanor uh, of the witness um, when it comes to determining their, um, their credibility and their believability. Uh, and so that surely will play in here. 
there's layers here, right? I mean, so there's, and from a legal perspective, there's even if everything that has been alleged is true, is it disqualifying? And um, ethics experts seem divided on that. There's some who think that uh, unless she had a financial interest in the outcome, um, then this is not disqualifying. And none of these allegations go to suggesting that she had a financial interest in the outcome. There's another view um, that this is just more broadly about whether or not there is an appearance of a conflict um, that that's sufficient um, to create doubts in the community uh, about uh, about her ability to execute um, this case fairly. Um, and that's obviously a lower standard. Uh, and if that's the standard the judge goes with, um, then this does become a question about credibility. Um, and that, and so that's where I think we are, Fred. But wasn't the thing one of the things that's important about that testimony yesterday was that if he had said, "Oh yes, I knew this relationship uh, had begun much before they said it did," then they would in fact be gu- potentially guilty of perjury because they would have lied in court documents and on the witness stand about that. So there's that, and then in terms of this specific case, uh, there were, it would raise the question whether or not she, in fact whether it should be believed, uh, whether she should be believed more broadly, including uh, whether she should be believed in terms of the fact she paid him back. So her credibility is being challenged by way of this witness. Um, So if his credibility uh, doesn't really um, register with the judge, um, then uh, then that's not a sufficient basis, I would think, to doubt her credibility. Um, Tammy, let's talk about the way in which uh, Trump and his lawyers in case after case have done everything they can to muddy the waters, to disparage and condemn the people who are prosecuting them, to uh, uh, take actions that delay trials as long as possible. I mean, it certainly is part of the Trump game uh, to go after people like Fonnie Willis. He's uh, gone after her. He's called her a racist um, at one time or another. Um, So, When Patricia Murphy writes that the focus of this ought to be on whether or not he tried to overturn the Georgia election, she makes an important point, doesn't she? Bill, you must have been reading my mind because that's what was screaming in my brain is that um, this is a complete distraction. Alvin Bragg, Letitia James and Fonnie Willis are all racist according to the former president. Um, You have a challenge with Jack Smith's wife. You have an issue with the the judge um, in the New York case uh, um, that Letitia James' um, office was part of. Um, It's all a distraction. And um, sometimes, you know, when you think about it, it's like if someone who earned $50,000 a year were to perform some of these acts, would we all have the same patience? with these individuals? Would we allow for such reactions to take place? And the answer is no. It's also very interesting to me that somehow, um, I don't know if everyone is actually watching all of the testimony because, um, you know, when the attorneys or their speculation that the former president's uh, representatives hired a, a, a private investigator to look into the cell phone things. Is that the same private investigator who investigated President Obama's birth certificate? This is a complete distraction. Well, I, it, we've only got about three minutes, but I do think we need to say, um, Andra, that what we know about the cell phone data is that that Steve Sato did hire, hire a very reputable uh, company uh, to do that. At least we need to make that Uh, clear. It doesn't necessarily prove anything, these records, but it's a company that's known for its uh, good work. 
Yeah, I mean, you know, that th- that is the case, but I think that the difference kind of comes down to sort of what's circumstantial and what is concrete. The cell phone data suggests that Nathan Wade was in the area of Fonnie Willis's house, but you can't necessarily say, I know for sure that he was at a point that is like in her living room or her bedroom at any given time. But that doesn't mean that this doesn't change impressions and impressions, I think, matter in this case. It matters for the jury pool, and it actually is going to matter for Fonnie Willis's legacy beyond this. Tia, um, we're all just about out of time, but I would love to give you the last word on this part of the show. Well, I think I would just encourage our listeners to, again, elections matter. So whether we're talking about whether someone supports Fonnie Willis and her um, the, the charges she brought against President Trump, whether you support Mayor Gertz and the fact that the city of Athens has established itself as a place that immigrants are welcome, even if they're undocumented. Um, all of this comes down to the fact that elections matter and, and informed people will make, will be in a better position to make choices and, about which direction they want their, their city, state and government. Well, to go. and Tia, as Andra just pointed out, there's going to be a jury pool if this case ever does uh, get to court. And that potential pool is already watching and absorbing all of this right now. So that too, not just in terms of the elections, but who's going to be on that jury uh, matters a great deal. That's all the time we have for today's podcast. You can now hear Politically Georgia live weekday mornings at 10 on 90.1 WABE in Atlanta. Or, as you already do, you can follow us on your favorite podcast app, and you'll hear new episodes every afternoon. If you like what you hear, please leave us a review and share Politically Georgia with a friend. Join us again tomorrow for Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Our journalists at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution are working around the clock to keep you updated on all the developments surrounding the Trump indictment. Now the AJC is putting all of our coverage in one place with our new Trump 19 newsletter. Every Wednesday, you'll have our latest coverage and analysis on this historic case in your inbox. So sign up for free today at AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. That's all one word. AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. I'm Ernie Suggs, race and culture reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. And I'm Ned Ravone, lifestyle columnist. Atlanta has been known as the Black Mecca for so many years, but that means something different to everybody. It means everything to me. I've been living here for 24 years, and I am still amazed at how rich the city's Black culture continues to grow. Every day I wake up, I learn something new. Well, you all can learn something new by subscribing to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution's new newsletter called Unapologetically ATL. It's all about the people, the events, and the entertainment happening in Metro Atlanta that Black people might want to know about. Like historically Black colleges and universities. Atlanta's thriving art scene. And the city's growing neighborhoods. Wherever you live, we want to hear from you. We want to hear what issues are important to you. So subscribe today at www.ajc.com slash unapologetically ATL. Only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Constitution.